Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Samantha Thomas. And I'm Irina Shapiro. Our guest today is Dr. Ivan Schwab. Dr. Schwab is a professor of ophthalmology at UC Davis. He specializes in corneal diseases and uveitis and maintains an active research life in this field. But it's Dr. Schwab's long-standing interest in comparative op ophthalmology that brings him to the show today. In this interview, we'll talk about the story of eye evolution and some of the remarkable designs that resulted. To begin, here's Dr. Schwab on how the study of eye evolution fits in with broad evolutionary principles. The eye is a complex device, complex organ, and Darwin recognized this, and uh, although he wrote a sentence or two in Origin of the Species that would make some think, uh, mainly the creationists, uh, think that he doubted it, he didn't doubt that it could evolve, it's just that it takes many steps to evolve. But by seeing what complexity can be built by using one step after another, and really a relatively small number of steps, uh, you can build a, a very complex organ from simple structures. Uh, a model has been done, a good um, model done by uh, uh, Dan Eric Nielsen, and the uh, idea of starting with an eye spot and genetic drift of about a percent or so over X number of generations, and then looked at the number of generations it would take for each step to form an eye. And basically what he found was the steps uh, with a 1% genetic drift, the steps necessary to form an eye as complex as a camera-style eye, which humans have, might require uh, as little as uh, 100 or 200,000 uh, generations. Now that sounds like a lot because we think of generation in terms of humans or elephants. But in fact, at the time this was changing, the generations were in single cell or small number of cells, still metazoa, but small number of cells in the, in the group. So you end up seeing um, generation come along perhaps as little as a, a year or two or, or maybe a month or two. Bacteria, after all, I have new generations, uh, some of them as fast as every 20 or 30 minutes. So you can see that generation time is species dependent, and if you just need a few hundred thousand generations uh, and you have a, a single cell with an eye spot, you may be able to get an eye in as little as a half a million years. If you're familiar with the evolution debate, you probably know the reference that Dr. Schwab just made to Darwin. Here's the quote for those who haven't heard it. To suppose that the eye, with all of its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. This direct quote from Darwin is part of the reason the eye is frequently cited by those challenging the theory of evolution. However, as Dr. Schwab pointed out, Darwin went on to say that if it were shown that modern sophisticated eyes could be the result of a series of small, useful advances, then his theory could be generalized to include structures as complex as the eye. Dr. Schwab told us this can be accomplished in as little as 100,000 generations, but it needs to start somewhere. We asked him to take us to the very beginning of light detection. The first eye spots, well, didn't start as eye spots. They started as um, 
the incorporation of a molecule, probably a vitamin A derivative called retinol or uh, uh, retinolic acid or retinaldehyde. Um, this is a related to vitamin A and has similar structure to vitamin A, but it reacts to light. And it does so, when it does so, it transfers a proton. It's called a proton pump. So this molecule is probably in the prebiotic soup or perhaps generated by the first cell, but at least in the prebiotic soup and incorporated in the membrane and used as cellular energy. In other words, the cell used this compound to generate um, energy and be a, a, a smarter cell or a quicker cell than its next-door neighbor. So that's the way it started. It didn't start for uh, the purposes of sight. When cells begin to specialize and those molecules begin to coordinate and come together, collect perhaps, that's where you generate an eye spot. And cells probably were co-opted by evolution to use it as site for protection uh, or maybe predation. And you need some, what quality is called spatial recognition. I mean, you need to be able to see form if you're going to be a predator. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be fantastic. It just has to be form. That requires, it requires a spot turning into a cut. So the spots are probably just five miter dark. And the reason a cell would do that is that food may be uh, in a lit area or danger may be in a lit area. So the spot may be for the purpose of uh, avoiding danger or finding food. One of the most interesting parts of the story of early eye evolution is that the first photoreactive compounds were originally used for energy and only later repurposed for light detection. Nonetheless, these pigments mark the very first step towards sight. And now that we've got a sense of early eye evolution, we asked how many times the more complex structures evolved. It is the opinion of most evolutionary biologists who are interested in eyes that uh, an eye really began many times, uh, 30, 40, or more times. And some of the eyes would come and go, disappear. Others would, would succeed. But at least one biologist, uh, prominent evolutionary biologist, uh, Walter Gehring, believes eyes began just once. And it's a little like, um, well, uh, this is an old advertisement, but certs candy mints or certs mints used to say that it's, it has two purposes, certs uh, as a breath mint and certs as a candy mint. It's uh, two purposes. And you could go either direction. And you probably could go either direction, depending on the definition of what you wanted. And here's the issue. Certain parts of all eyes are highly conserved, meaning they're probably around very early, and they're in all eyes, like in almost all eyes, retinol as the, the photoreceptive structure. And perhaps some of the genetic structures, like the, the genes uh, in the PAC-6 group, and this is just a name for a group of genes that uh, help uh, design the head and the eye. Uh, these are very similar across all metazoa. So are the opsins, those different um, proteins that help uh, guide the photoreceptive element of the eye into perceiving certain colors. Uh, so those are old, and they've been around a long time, and cells keep them because they work. 
So that tells us that those were ancient. If you say that's enough to make an eye, then Gary's right. It just the eyes occur just once. But those are so generalized and maybe not picked up originally for the purpose of an eye anyway. Um, most other evolutionary biologists believe that further genes, genetic uh, changes, uh, either duplication or uh, changes in the genetic makeup are called downstream genes, genes that occurred after, say, the, the um, Pax6 gene, the gene that makes an eye. Um, the downstream genes control how the eye is designed. And most of us think that it, the eye probably occurred or evolved many times. Uh, it just depends on how you find it. To get a clear answer on how many times eyes evolved, you need to be clear about what an eye is. The story can be neatly summarized as deep conservation of fundamental components paired with independent evolution of ocular structures. The independent evolution step has resulted in a vast array of designs. The two major classes of modern eye types are compound eyes and camera style eyes. Our own eyes are camera style and we'll talk about them. But first, let's hear a bit about compound eyes, which far outshine the former in diversity. Some of the eyes that uh, are particularly intriguing to me are in the arthropods. Um, they're not as good an eye, say, as a, in a primate or a, a, a bird, but they're intriguing because they're called compound eyes and they're made up of many units. If you have a picnic and you get visited by a wasp or a fly and you look carefully at the eye, you'll notice that the eye are made up of um, six-sided units. And those six-sided units, each one is called a nomatidium. That's Greek, and it means little eye. Uh, or plural, omatidia, and that's plural for little eyes. The omatidia uh, are six-sided because it fits better fits together best as a mosaic, and you get the most number uh, collected. Um, the compound eye has um, has flowered into many different kinds of eyes, so that even though it looks the same on a fly and, say, a moth, it isn't. Uh, it's a different style inside the eye. And I don't want to go into those details now. It's Your audience may not be as interested in the individual mechanisms. <laughs> Within the eye of a moth, for example, the way the eye is structured, it's able to collect about a thousand times the amount of light that a fly can collect. So that's why you see flies active during the day and moths active during the night. Curiously enough, some of these moth eyes are in, moth-style eyes, are in insects that have to be active during the day as well. Well, the moth-style eye, called the superposition eye, the superposition eye may collect so much light that it would dazzle an eye during the day. And so, as a further step in evolution, the insects that have these compound eyes actually have sunglasses. They will use pigment granules to shield each one of those individual units, the omatidia, to shield each one so that it essentially blocks the stray, stray light so that the insect can be active during the day or at night. And to add a little twist to it, just for a little bit of fun, 
the moths have evolved a, a surface coating of their uh, individual units of the omatidia that permit constructive interference of light, meaning not only to capture the light that comes in, but it reinforces it. This is so good as a scientific principle that the principle is now used in, uh, in other light-gathering instruments. Our eyes, like those of most vertebrates, are camera-style. We asked, what are the relative advantages of a camera-style eye compared to a compound eye? The compound eye were probably the first uh, true eye, but that's, that's under debate. They are small, single units, as you see in a fly or a wasp, and those units depend on... Uh, maximum light, so they're diurnal daily, diurnal eyes, whereas a camera-style eye can be used uh, at night. Now, moths are a bit of an exception. They've taken those uh, single units, the omatidium, or plural omatidia, taken the omatidia to concentrate, they've changed the anatomy of it, to concentrate the uh, light so that they can still see at night, sometimes quite well, and sometimes in color, but they don't have the visual acuity, and the visual acuity is limited because of these individual units. So the main disadvantage for the diurnal animals is that you know, they're limited by requiring light, and they're also limited by what is known as diffraction. And that basically means that if your opening gets too small, the light scatters enough it, uh, it fringes and develops uh, uh, distortion so that the image is not usable. So they're limited by the amount of light and uh, by diffraction. Moths' eyes are limited by glare if they get too much light. They're also limited by diffraction uh, and only take in those individual spots of light uh, that the uh, individual omatidia receives. So acuity is limited. The camera-style eye, on the other hand, is able to have a larger pupil take in more light when the light is dimmer and able to concentrate cells in the back of the eye, uh, in the retina. Additionally, at least for the um, terrestrial animals and, for some extent, the aquatic animals, you can change the position of the lens within the eye. This is called accommodation. This is what you do when you're looking off at a distant object and then decide you want to look at something close, like your newspaper. Uh, you change focus, and that's called accommodation. Accommodation can occur in camera-style eyes much more easily than in uh, compound eyes. Compound eyes rarely have much in the way of accommodation. Now, optically, they don't need it so much, but still they can accommodate like uh, a terrestrial camera-style eye can. So another weakness of the compound eye is the inability to accommodate. Camera-style eye, however, can accommodate. You know, fish do it differently than, than terrestrial animals, and their accommodation is not as robust as a terrestrial animal. Uh, but accommodation within um, some of the terrestrial animals, and the best example are birds that will fly up in the air and see well in the air and yet dive and see well underwater, like cormorants or dippers. 
and, and they do so with a, a special trick of their lens, uh, causing the lens to be very thick in the area where they're receiving their light rays. Um, it's called uh, a collidating leticronus. It doesn't matter about the name, but what it means is they're able to achieve very strong accommodation and probably the, the highest level of accommodation in the animal kingdom. So you have an advantage of uh, not requiring uh, higher light levels. You're not limited by diffraction. You have better accommodation and better visual acuity in a camera-style eye as compared to a compound eye. If you've never broken open a camera and high school biology was a long time ago, the resemblance might take some explanation. To get a sense of the anatomy, we asked Dr. Schwab to walk us through the critical structures of the camera-style eye. Camera-style eyes have um, uh, just what you would think of your single-lens reflex. It has um, a, a lens inside the eyes. You might have a lens inside the camera. And that lens is a focusing element. Uh, to start the focusing uh, of uh, light as it comes in, there's a cornea, and that's a front surface. When you look in the mirror, you can see the color part of your, of your eye, but you can see a, uh, a faintly visible structure uh, at the front, with a little reflex, and, and that's, a, that's a cornea, and a clear window into the eye. The iris is the a colored portion of the eye. People have blue irises or hazel or brown. That's a diaphragm, and that means it can get larger or um, smaller depending on the amount of light. And just like with your camera, if you have too much light, you can make the diaphragm smaller, or if there's not enough light, you can make the diaphragm larger to take in more light. The lens is behind that, and the camera is a little different since it doesn't have a cornea, but if you think of the first lens in the camera element, as a, as a cornea and the second lens as the lens in the eye, it's sort of analogous. <laughs> and usually a space, and the reason for the space is the light rays are bent and they have to come to a point focus. And depending on the strength of the lens, the, the point focus is where the, the film or the cells that do the reception of the light rays, the, the retina, uh, that's where the light rays are focused. The photoreceptors uh, don't uh, perceive the image. They perceive that particular set of photons, that light ray. And those images, those uh, stimuli to the photoreceptors have to be gathered and taken to the brain where they're interpreted and then um, and made into an image, at least in, in uh, our eye. Vertebrate eyes are impressively sophisticated structures, but before we let that get to our heads, we better tell you that someone else evolved camera-style eyes, entirely independently. Even though opening a, um, cutting open an eye of an octopus and cutting open the eye of a bird, superficially you'd look at those eyes and say, well, these are very similar. They're similar only because they're camera-style eyes but they're very different. Uh, they're different embryologically uh, in the way they develop. Uh, they're different in their physical anatomy, in their physical abilities, uh, and in the way they receive and process light. Uh, so the only thing really in common is the superficial appearance of a camera-style eye. But they're, 
they're really quite different. So though the details of the structures are quite different, the design principles underlying cephalopod and vertebrate eyes are similar. Initially, we thought that cephalopods got the better end of the deal because they don't have a blind spot. This is because while our retinas are inverted, meaning that the photoreceptors point in the opposite direction as the light source, the cephalopods' photoreceptors point toward the light source. Basically, this means that humans actually look through their retina, blood vessels and all, then collect all the neurons into the optic nerve to be redirected to the brain, resulting in a blind spot. But it turns out that an inverted retina allows us to transmit a pre-processed image to the brain, so in exchange for a blind spot, we do see a little faster. Speaking of the brain, we next wanted to know more about its relationship with the eye. And we hit a nerve when we asked Dr. Schwab which came first, the eye or the brain. Here's his take on what turns out to be a controversial question. When I give a talk on how the eye evolved, it's usually to people uh, who are interested in eye development, often ophthalmologists, optometrists, uh, people who have an interest in eyes. And anyone who's studied the development of eyes uh, always gets the story, gets the line from embryologists, that the eye is now pouching the brain. And I begin by presenting some of the stuff I've just discussed with you, but I discuss uh, eye spots begin, and then they made a little cup, and the cup began to close off. It came up a pinpoint. But whenever you can define an eye, that is perhaps as little as one or two cells, if it has the right structure, some animals, some creatures, organisms, have eyes but have no brain. So my argument is that the eye is not an outpouching of the brain, but rather the brain is an outpouching of the eye. <laughs> it's always been a chuckle for my audience, and usually the audience is very sympathetic because they're on the side of studying eye development, so there's usually a, a, a little uh, smile and chuckle from the audience. But there's some truth to it, and here's what, here's what I go on to explain. If you start a new job and you uh, walk into an empty room with just a desk and you have some papers, you start to write on the papers, whatever your job is, you begin to stack the papers you have written on, whatever you're writing up, whatever you're doing, and as you have one or two pieces of paper, it's easy to find what you just wrote. But as your papers begin to stack up and you have lots of reports, now you have to go through a whole stack of papers like one of my offices here at home is filled with stacks of paper on the floor, you know, no vertical, no horizontal surfaces, safe sort of approach to filing. If you have stacks of papers that you can't go through, you need a filing system. Then you need something like a file cabinet where you can put these files. You need a brain. You need somewhere where the files can be stored in an organized fashion and recalled because now you need to compare one previous memory to another, to a new one, perhaps. Now, when I tell neurologists this, the neurologists uh, say, well, no, you got to have a brain to work an eye. Uh, the key question then to ask is, well, then you need to define a brain. What does it take to make a brain? And the best example I can bring up is uh, one of the uh, uh, jellyfish, uh, Trapadelli, Trypodelia cystophora, and it's in my book. Uh, uh, this jellyfish has um, four sets of eyes, and each set of eyes 
uh, hanging down on little bell cords. Um, there's six eyes in each little set. And they use the eyes to go towards the light, away from light. Um, they live in mangrove swamp uh, water. They need to find the shafts of light where the copepods live that they eat. So as they as they move towards the light, or as they as they sense light with one set of eyes, those the eyes on the side of the jellyfish that sense it will stimulate a ring of ganglia, not a brain, but rather just cells that transfer uh, stimulus to the other arms of the jellyfish to make it swim in that direction. Now, is that brain? And that's uh, an animal I start with uh, if I'm going to talk to a neurologist about that. Dr. Schwab's seen a lot of eyes in his life and finds something interesting in all of them, but we wanted to know what was the strangest eye he's ever seen. The one I'm most fond of because it uh, shows um, the it shows the extent that evolution will go, and we don't even completely understand why this animal has all these abilities. But it has to be the mantis shrimp. The eye is a compound eye made up of many units, and those many units, each one called an omatidium, uh, and all the eyes together, all the units together are omatidia. The omatidia are arranged in such a fashion that there is a belt around the equator, around the middle portion of the eye, of concentrated omatidia. Now, the smaller the omatidia, the more light they require, but also the greater detail of the image they see. So this belt is very much equivalent to our best focus area in our eye, called the fovea. And you use the fovea to read the newspaper, for example. The belt of concentrated omatidia in the stomatopods, or in the uh, mantis shrimp allows it to have detailed vision in that equatorial band. It probably uses that to spot prey, but for us interested in eyes, the most interesting part of this animal's uh, eye revolves around the number of visual pigments. Now, visual pigments are necessary to perceive different colors in the environment. The visual pigments you have in your eye are three color visual pigments, and one essentially that's for black and white for nighttime vision. So you have three visual pigments, and it's called trichromacy. Um, the three visual pigments you have in your eye and the different photoreceptors permit you to see all this glorious array of color we see in our lives. Um, mantis shrimp has 16 visual pigments. Now, depending on how you define them, you might say, well, there's only 12 visual pigments. Okay. Depending on how you define the, uh, the visual pigments themselves, maybe it's only 12, but if it's at least 12, then some would say 16. So imagine the array of colors this animal can see, hues we can't imagine, and I can't begin to explain to you, but it gets better. The animal can not only see in the ultraviolet, where we can't see at all, and again, it's something I can't describe, it's like seeing out of the back of your head, but it also sees polarized light. Now that means that if you put on a pair of Polaroid sunglasses and maybe you can penetrate uh, the reflexes off the surface of, uh, of uh, water if you're out on a boat. You can see sort of under the water a bit. Imagine using polarized light when you're already underwater to clarify images. But the one that really gets my attention is it not only sees linear polarized light, but sees circular polarized light. 
Now, physically, this is a concept that's hard to get your head around, and you really need to be into the study of the physics of light to understand it. And I don't, I don't know that I completely understand it. But these two different kinds of polarized light help the animals see one another for the purpose of mating. I come back to the point that for evolution, it's all about mating, um, food, shelter. Despite a lifetime of studying the eye and publishing broadly on the topic, in 2006, Dr. Schwab was awarded an Ig Nobel Prize for something else. He answered a long-standing question of ornithologists and hikers. Why woodpeckers don't get headaches? Here's part of the answer. What we found is that the lower mandible, the beak, the lower beak, is about four times denser than the upper beak. Furthermore, even though in real life it looks like the upper beak is longer than the lower beak, the bony portion isn't. If you x-ray it and increase the intensity of the x-ray, the front tip of the upper uh, maxilla or upper mandible, the upper beak, disappears radiographically, meaning although it's there, it's softer and spongier. So almost no force is delivered to the upper beak. All the force of the strike goes in the lower beak, lower, lower mandible. It's so dense that it takes all the, the power of the strike, cycles it into the base of the skull, which is also quite dense, and probably radiates into the muscle of the neck. Again, that's only part of the answer. To get the full story, you can search YouTube for an episode of Weird Science where Dr. Schwab walks you through the anatomical and physiological features that protect the bird. Getting back to eyes, we've heard about the eyes of several animals, and Dr. Schwab's book has hundreds more. But our guest hasn't seen enough yet. Let's hear what Dr. Schwab's got his eye on next. I'm working on several interesting uh, projects, and one of them is looking at a trilobite and I'm looking at a trilobite eye using uh, concentrated x-rays. And what I'm able to find are the individual lenses as, as uh, the x-ray steps back into the fossil. And we're able to find the lenses, and I'm now getting to the point of defining the, the cells that make up these individual omitidia. So give me a call in six months, and I'll tell you what the inside of a trilobite's eye looks like. Well, that just about wraps up our show today on the story of eye evolution. To hear more from Dr. Schwab, find his TED Talk on the evolution of sight or check out his book, The Evolution of the Eye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. To hear more from us, tune in next time and check out our website. For Charles Lee, Frank Ling, Forrest Golden, and Joanna Rawal, I'm Irina Shapiro. And I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.